Welcome to Mind Love, episode 52. Today's episode is all about courage, collaboration, and showing up. I think I used to think of courage as could belong to an exclusive few. But standing in my living room that night, I realized, you know what? I was scared, but I did it anyway. And that's really what courage is. A lot of courage is owning our own fear and owning our own feelings of inadequacy and the imposter syndrome and feeling like I don't have it together, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop me from moving forward. Turn up your frequency with Mind Love. Bite-sized brain hacks for seekers, dreamers, and doers. It's time to give your mind a little love with your host, Melissa Monti. First, Mind Love is a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest-growing, highest-rated podcast app on both iOS and Android. And for good reason. The app is awesome. Personally, it's my favorite and where I listen to all of my podcasts. You can still listen to Mind Love wherever you get your podcasts, but I hope you'll give CastBox a try. Second, don't forget to subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on and leave a review if you can. Reviews really help to entice more amazing guests. Plus, it helps me grow the show, which ultimately helps me give more value to you guys. Hi, friends. When we're young, we tend to think the path to success is just a straight line from point A to B. We get good grades, we might go to a good college, we get a good job with benefits and a retirement plan, and we slowly work our way up that corporate ladder. Well, at least that's the story that was fed to us elder millennials, as Eliza Schlesinger calls us. (laughs) But that picture-perfect dream bubble has popped for most of us. The truth is, life is full of twists and turns, and what we're doing now might not be even in the same category as the legacy we end up leaving. If you would have told me in high school that in 15 years, I would be the host of a podcast helping hundreds of thousands of people realize the power of their mindsets, I would have been flattered, but pretty sure you had the wrong girl. Well, actually, I might have been cocky enough back then that I would have taken it, but my subconscious would have been swirling with doubt. I originally went to school for journalism, and then I completely lost interest. Then I became an enrollment counselor for an online school. Then I got into digital marketing, then apps, then startups. And it's funny because I've always viewed my path as sort of random and all over the place. But just in crafting this episode, actually, I realized how this experience perfectly laid the path to what I'm creating now. Podcasting is a form of journalism, and I think it's this experience that drives me to pack each episode with as much knowledge as possible. Helping people enroll in school helped me learn to push people to accomplish their goals. Digital marketing helped me grow this podcast. Apps helped me understand what people want when they're consuming media on their phones. And working with startups has helped me with everything from managing my website to convincing guests that sometimes were out of my league to spend an hour with me for this show. And now it's getting easier. The ups and downs, the age and experience, even the traumas and the work I've put into my life are all straightening out my path. It doesn't seem quite all over the board anymore. But it is interesting that even before, when I honestly had no idea what my purpose was, There was still, somehow, this little trail of breadcrumbs of the value I can offer right now. Our guest today understands this completely. Her name is Jessica Honiger, the founder of Noonday Collection. In 2015, Inc. Magazine called Noonday Collection one of the fastest growing companies in America. But before this, she'd done everything from midwifery in Bolivia to getting a master's in education to flipping homes in Austin, Texas. But it's only reflecting back now does she see the common thread, which was a desire to find a way to create meaningful opportunities for others. In her teens, she went on a trip to Kenya, and that was the first time that she saw the effects of global poverty. And that trip ignited the first sparks of her desire to help people with less privilege than us. 
After having two kids of her own, she really wanted to extend her family by adopting a boy from Rwanda, but she didn't have the money. She'll tell you all the details, but basically what began as an idea to make some extra cash to adopt a child turned into a $17 million global business empowering women. Three key things we will learn today are how to overcome fear and go in scared to any opportunity, the power of collaboration, and how to multiply your ideas with an invisible council. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the best way to stay in your highest frequency between episodes. Thousands of listeners are loving my daily morning mind love emails. They're short daily reminders of your own beauty, magic, and power so you can start each day with your best mindset. Just go to mindlove.com and sign up right there on the homepage. Plus, you'll get some amazing free gifts when you do. First, you'll get a really cool free booklet of Powerless based on proven methods from the most successful people in the world to automate your highest decisions. Plus, you'll get a free guided affirmation meditation. It's set with a binaural frequency known as the Miracle Tone, which is known to make you a magnet for love, health, and abundance. Then it's layered with affirmations to perfectly tune your frequency for transformation. Just go to mindlove.com to sign up. Or if you're out and about, just text the word MORNING to 33777. That's MORNING to 33777. And now let's welcome Jessica Honiger to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to get to chat with you today. I love what you're doing on this podcast because mindset is everything. And I think so much of us overlook that. And that's so much of what my book is about. So we're going to have a juicy conversation today. For listeners who don't know, Noonday Collection is such a cool idea. Basically, Noonday Collection travels the world and partners with really talented artisans in areas that have less opportunity than us. So that alone is pretty cool. But then you actually create opportunities for other women by allowing them to create home-based businesses selling all of this amazing stuff. So not only are you helping vulnerable communities around the world, but you're helping communities in your own backyard. So how did Noonday Collections start? What originally inspired that idea? Yeah. So Noonday Collection really started out of a financial need. My husband and I had decided to grow our family through adoption. I had two little kids under five, the old fashioned way, and we wanted to grow our family through international adoption. And we began that adoption process and it's really expensive. And we began that paperwork trail and landed on the beautiful country of Rwanda. And then about halfway into the process, the recession hit Austin and we had been working in the housing market. We'd been flipping homes and eventually going into full-time real estate and all the money we thought we had to pay for that international adoption was suddenly paying the grocery bills. So at that point, I knew I needed to start some some sort of side hustle. And I thought, okay, am I just going to ask friends and family for money? That sounded like a terrible proposition. Like, what am I going to do? Because we weren't going to let a financial obstacle stand in the way of us going and getting our son from Rwanda. And I had some friends living in Uganda who previously had kind of mentioned this idea to me, hey, Jessica, we have some Ugandan friends that we're trying to help out here in Uganda. And they are beautiful and talented artisans. They just don't have a marketplace for their goods. And we've gotten to make a whole bunch of stuff. It's just sitting in storage. Would you ever consider selling their stuff? And I laughed them off at the time. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm doing real estate. I've got two kids, another one on the way, my plate's full. Well, fast forward where courage cornered me and I remembered that conversation and I thought, well, gosh, maybe I could sell those things made from you in Uganda. So I texted my friends and said, hey, is that offer still on the table? And they said, absolutely. So I went and picked up all these African crates and I drove back to my house and dusted everything off and began to sort through all of my clothes and dishes and any sort of housewares and styled my home as best as I could and invited a whole bunch of friends over and said, hey, everything's for sale. (laughs) Will you come over and help us get our son home? And, you know, I remember the day arrived when friends were going to come over and I suddenly thought this was the stupidest idea in the entire world. 
first of all, we're still trying to make it as realtors. And now everyone's going to see behind the veil of desperation that we don't even have clients in the pipeline to afford this adoption. Look, I'm selling everything but the kitchen sink. And then I thought, no one's going to come. Like, no one's going to come. And if they come, they're not going to want to buy anything. And I just remember standing there looking around going, I want to call this thing off. And I didn't. And I'm so glad I didn't because so many women came and I invited them into this story and they wanted to be a part of it. Women wanted to show up for me. They wanted to show up for Jalia and Daniel on the other side of the globe. They wanted to gather physically. They wanted to use their purchasing power for good. And that one night women said, well, do you have more of this? Because I'd open my home. I've got a bunch of friends that I'd love to be able to support you and purchase these beautiful products. And so the next day I realized this could be a business. And I started calling up other women and saying, Hey, is that, you know, do you want to open up your home? And then I texted my friends in Uganda and I said, could I get more of this? And they said, absolutely. And they connected me directly then to their friends, Jalia and Daniel. And I set up a Western Union account and I went and pawned off my gold jewelry in order to launch the first website. And I was suddenly in business. And eight years later, we now have 60 employees in our Austin office. And Jalia and Daniel now have 100 full-time employees in Uganda. And we now partner with 30 other artisan businesses who impact and create jobs for 4,500 artisans. And it all came from standing in my living room that one night going, this was the stupidest idea in the world. That's just amazing. You really highlighted how limiting beliefs creep in. No one's going to come. This is a stupid idea. But those are all just fears, whether it's imposter syndrome or just that we've never stepped out of our comfort zone in this particular way, our brain tries all sorts of sneaky things to keep us stagnant or in one place. So how did you talk yourself into moving beyond those limiting beliefs? Yeah. You know, I think what I realized that night is that I could embrace paradox, that I could be scared and I could still do this anyway. I could feel imperfect. And I could still make an impact. And I think I have had this tendency to have this either or thinking in my life and this perfectionistic thinking that I needed to be this certain idealized version of somebody else or a unicorn version of myself in order to be accepted, in order to belong. And I think that night it was realizing I could just be me and people could see behind the veil. And I think a huge part of the process too was just, it's kind of hard to back out of something when you've already put yourself out there like that. And, you know, I like to tell people I had home births. And part of that is because I wanted to stand in solidarity with the women around the world that I work with and love. And many of them don't have access to an epidural. But I also... I know I'm the type that if I'm at the hospital and I'm in pain and I'm going to get that epidural, like even if I say I'm not going to do it, I'm going to do it. So I'd like to put myself in situations where I can't back out, where I'm actually cornering myself. And I feel like that was a little bit that night. So even though I wanted to cancel, I'm also thinking, gosh, people are already on their way or I had different people, you know, maybe bringing, you know, wine or whatever. and. So there was a little bit of that level of, I might as well just do this and see how it goes. You know, like what's the worst thing that could happen here? And I think that the more we are able to step into vulnerability, you know, so there's that moment when you're feeling vulnerable. It's like my living room moment where I'm just feeling so vulnerable. And we really have two choices there. Are we going to armor up and pretend and fake our way? Or are we going to just show up and be ourselves? And one option, when we pretend we don't ever experience the connection that we long for, right? So then we wind up feeling disconnected from ourselves and disconnected from others. But when we choose the other option, just showing up and being ourselves, that's when we experience the connection that we're longing for anyway. And that's what I experienced that night in my home, even though it was vulnerable, that women were shopping my backroom sale and seeing what my jean size were, and they were buying my grandma's dishes, you know, when I was 
departing with things that I loved, but there was something there about just being me and letting people into my home and letting people into this messy story. Other women are drawn to that. Other women are attracted to that because it helps us to feel connected. It gives us, it creates a space for others to be themselves, you know? And I think that's really where life is lived and it's not the up and up, right? It's lived in the up and the down. And there's something about letting people in when you're going through a vulnerable situation or you're going through a hard time that gives them permission, you know, and I mean, it's just amazing what that's led to, you know, that decision to choose authenticity's way, the connection it brought that night, and then the connection that it sparked all over the world since is profound. I can really relate to what you said about putting yourself in situations where you can't back out. That tactic is actually one of my go-tos for accountability. The first time I remember really thinking about it was when I first began healing from my eating disorder. There were a few times throughout that decade that I was dealing with bulimia that I, I tried to heal, but I didn't dare open up about it because I wasn't sure I could do it. And I already knew what it felt like having my mom know and feeling like she was watching me. After you tell someone something like, I used to throw up my food, they start thinking back on all of the clues they did not pick up on before, and then those clues never slip by them again. So when I did finally share, it was a really big moment for me because I knew I couldn't go back. I actually remember when it was coming out of my mouth, I was already almost wishing that I hadn't shared that much. But then as the universe tends to work, that friend was exactly the person who needed to hear it. She had recently started struggling with something similar. So right away, my fear turned to gratitude. Like, I am exactly where I need to be right now. So to be honest, I have always been an oversharer anyways, but I used to be much more selective. I'd overshare for the comedic value or for the shock factor. But now I just try to lay out my mess. I try to tell myself that someone somewhere needs to hear this because come on, we all have messy stories. Nobody's perfect. People don't even like to see perfect anymore. We might envy perfection, but we certainly can't relate to it. I think also as we've become so used to social media, we're just tired of seeing perfect at this point. Yeah. A story that I share in my book is my friend in Rwanda. He ended up, he was our attorney that helped us get Jack home. So we were able to get Jack home and he is a genocide survivor. And when I first went over to Rwanda to adopt Jack, we spent a ton of time with Norbert. He was our attorney. So we were with him every day and he's the one who's been really fighting for our son and advocating for him. And I wanted to know more of his story. So over lunch one day, I just began to probe a little bit and he hedged a bit and I probed a little more. And then the words just came tumbling out his entire story of hiding in a mango tree, hearing his parents and his two sisters get macheted to death during the genocide. And then he and his brother hid in the forest for three months, hiding from the genocidiers. And eventually he made it to the city of Kampala and became basically a servant for a family to try to make his way and eventually he was able to go to college and get his law degree. And he's sharing this story to me. Obviously, we're, we're all crying. And he had told me he'd never shared it before. He'd never shared this story before. And I, the following year, went back to Rwanda with a group of women. And I said, would you be brave enough to share your story with this group? And he said, yes. And that night he brought along his wife and his wife had never heard his story before. And she pulled me aside afterwards. And she said to me, I had to come hear Norbert tonight because ever since he met you, he's changed. Ever since he started sharing his story, he's become more healed and more whole. And that to me is the power of vulnerability. It truly is healing when we can own the fullness of our stories, whatever that might entail, and share that story in all of its truth. 
and all of its messiness, as all stories are. There are no perfect stories. Like those are uninteresting anyway, you know? And when we're able to share and then have a soft place to land and it's received with empathy, that truly is where healing begins to work. It's magical powers because where shame, you know, once lurked and shame just thrives in darkness, but it cannot survive in the light. And so where Norbert had so much shame surrounding his story and being a survivor and his family not, suddenly that shame began to lose its power and he began to see himself more as the hero in his story. And that to me, man, I have three kids and we just really try to create that compassionate place in our home where you can just show up as you are, you know, like let this home be the one place where you don't feel like you need to hide. And then the safer we feel and the, these little contexts that we can create a belonging, whether it's with our family or with a small group of friends, you know, then we can show up so much more brave in the world. So there's a lot of power in sharing your story. I'm glad that that's been part of your own experience. That story, I can't even imagine. I think we sometimes forget how privileged we are here in America, especially. There's so much outrage and victimization in the media. And yeah, there's a lot going on in our country. And I'm not saying that there's no basis to our struggles, but I think it's important to keep some perspective. We don't always think beyond our first world bubble over here. That's another reason why I think it's so important to share wherever you are in the world. You don't have to broadcast it on a podcast like me or write a book like you. You can share with your closest friend. You can share what you thought was your deep, dark secret with your spouse like him. It is vulnerable, though. We used to think of vulnerability, I think, as almost a weakness. And courage was this strong word that not a lot of us could identify with. But vulnerability itself takes courage. But that's where true connection comes from. I think I used to think of courage as could belong to an exclusive few. You know, it belonged to Martin Luther King. It belonged to Rosa Parks. It belonged to Abraham Lincoln. I actually didn't often really associate with that word courage. But standing in my living room that night, I realized, you know what? I was scared, but I did it anyway. And that's really what courage is. It's being afraid and going anyway. And that really is, I define courage as going scared. And so I think a lot of, of courage is owning our own fear and owning our own feelings of inadequacy and the imposter syndrome and feeling like I don't have it together, but that doesn't mean it's going to stop me from moving forward and not letting that perfectionism sideline us or the fear of failure, the fear of success or all those other things that we talk ourselves out of. Even the fear of just sharing our story. We're so afraid to actually just share the trueness of our story. And yet it's only in the sharing that we experience the connection that we've all been longing for. And then it, that opens up a door for connection for the other person. So it's not just this one way thing. I have a psychiatrist friend who he's moving his whole practice into more groups because he says it's not just about the person sharing their story in the context of this group, but it's about the listeners and it gives the listeners permission to share their stories and to own the messiness of their own stories too, you know? So it's this beautiful sort of contagious thing that happens. And yet I think that we grow up learning to mask up and not take our masks down and someone has to go first. And one of the bravest things we can do is own our feelings and feel our feelings and then actually share those feelings in a real authentic way. And that's certainly how I want to show up in all areas of my life, you know, I think authenticity is being able to be the same person and no matter what environment you might be in. And certainly that is, that's challenging to think of how to do that. I'm going to Harvard next week and I'm doing a three-day executive leadership training at Harvard. How am I going to show up there? I mean, I don't have any sort of formal business background and I'm not an Ivy Leaguer. I'm a scrappy entrepreneur who's bootstrapped my company. And it's very easy for me in that vulnerability to face those two choices. Like, okay, am I going to pretend? Do I need to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn this week? <laughs> or can I just show up and own what I have to give and own that, you know, my story's interesting and no one in the entire world has ever lived my exact story in this exact way. And 
it's going to teach someone. So I got to show up and be willing to share that and not armor up so that then I walk away disconnected. And then so does everyone else. It's true. And it's a concept we've talked about before. The more we pretend, the more we're playing a character. So the other person is connecting with that character. And that's just this empty shell. It's not you. And it's not sustainable unless you want to pretend forever. Which will eventually burn you out. Yeah. Right. And that's when you feel empty or lonely, like nobody understands you. People can't understand you if you're not showing up as who you truly are. How can anyone ever understand you if you are not the person showing up and you are not the person that they're getting to know? And then you wind up feeling isolated and alone and you're like, oh my gosh, how did I get here? And it's like, you got to show up and be you. That's the powerful thing, I think, about feeling alone. It's something that we can unchoose. Like none of us have to be alone. We can all learn how to show up and be seen. It seems like so much of your story has been guided through these deep connections and collaborations that you've created by being authentic. Your whole company is founded on the idea of collaborating with artisans and then growing through partnering with women as brand ambassadors and creating a branch of the business from their own homes. Which, if you think about it, in the beginning, that must have seemed like a pretty big ask before the company was validated, before it was making a lot of money. So when you are collaborating on a closer level, how do you know who's a good person to partner with? And how do you get the courage to ask them? Do you love story-driven podcasts? I do, and there's a brand new one that I think you're going to love. It's called You Probably Think the Story's About You. The story just grabs you from the start. It all starts with Brittany, who thinks she's found her soulmate, only to find out things aren't as they seem. So she goes on a mission to find out the truth, and as she digs deeper, she realizes the guy's a master of deception. But here's the thing. As Brittany unravels his lies, she ends up on this journey of self-discovery. She starts to see how her own complicated past with addiction, sisterhood, and deep family bonds all have shaped her. And that's when it hits you. This story isn't really about him at all. It's about Brittany finding herself and learning who she really is. Trust me, you'll be hooked from episode one, wondering where Brittany's path will lead her next. It's a story that'll make you look at your own life and relationships in a whole new way. Seriously, grab your headphones and start from episode one of You Probably Think This Story's About You. You'll laugh, you'll cry, and you'll come out feeling heard and stronger. Listen and follow You Probably Think This Story's About You wherever you listen to podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I need to get something off my chest. Sometimes I wake up feeling like I hate everything, like this dark cloud is over my day, and I look to the past and the future and everything feels tainted, like this is how it's always been. Those type of days used to last months, and now they're pretty few and far between, and they rarely last more than a few hours, but it can still make me feel like a fraud. I'm sharing this because I know that we all carry around these things that make us feel different or less than, but if we keep them bottled up, The shame spirals and creates more problems than that initial thought. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. For me, just talking things through is hugely helpful, but it's difficult finding friends or family that are unbiased or non-judgmental. Therapy isn't just about dealing with major trauma, you know. It's about learning healthy coping mechanisms, setting boundaries, becoming the best version of you. BetterHelp makes it super convenient, too. Everything's done online, so you can fit therapy sessions around your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MindLove today and get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MindLove. You know I'm all about aligning in every aspect of life, right? Well, that philosophy extends to hiring, too. When it comes to finding the perfect fit for your business, sometimes the best approach is to stop the endless searching and start focusing on alignment. And that's where Indeed comes in. Indeed is like the matchmaker of the hiring world. With millions of job seekers visiting their platform every month, their powerful matching engine is designed to connect you with candidates who truly align with your needs and values. 
But here's the thing. Indeed isn't just about finding any old match. They're committed to delivering quality. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed provides the highest caliber of candidates compared to other job sites. And that's the kind of alignment I'm talking about. As a busy mom juggling episodes, clients, retreat planning, family life, I just don't have time to waste on a drawn out hiring process. And that's why I love Indeed because it streamlines everything from scheduling interviews to screening applicants and messaging potential hires all in one central hub. And the more you use Indeed, the smarter it gets. It learns from your preferences. With over 3.5 million businesses worldwide trusting Indeed to align them with top-notch talent, it's pretty clear that this platform is the real deal. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash mindlove. Just go to indeed.com slash mindlove right now and support my show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mindlove. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. How do you know who's a good person to partner with and how do you get the courage to ask them? I'm someone who just asks people to help me. <laughs> so I don't have too many issues in asking for help, especially when it came to building Noonday Collection. Because I think once you discover a why that's so beyond yourself, um, once you are linking your success to other people's success. So Jolia and Daniel, after I set up that Western Union account and they're shipping me some items, well, within about six months, they are hiring a couple people off the street, literally. I mean, very destitute people in order to help them make these goods that I was ordering for these trunk shows back in America. And Johnny and Daniel are telling, oh, we're so excited. We just have been able to hire Let me a couple people. Let me tell you their stories. And of course, their stories are like, you know, their first artisan they hired grew up in an orphanage. And you're just like, oh, my gosh. Again, I cornered myself, right? It's like, well, I can't stop because Bukenya is on the other side of my success. And our prosperity is now linked. So I think that when you are able to link your future to someone else's, that is what makes courage contagious and also what kind of creates more of a long haul way of thinking. And when you are actually doing it with other people together. And I think for me, it's an interesting question to think about who I look for because I'm eight years in now. And of course, now we have corporate values and and a ton of interviews hiring people over the years. I think what I look for now as far as when I'm hiring someone, definitely this a bias towards action. You know, someone who isn't going to sit and stew and think about strategy forever, but someone who's really going to be able to strategize and execute and have that bias towards doing and someone who is really collaborative and who values sort of the meeting of the minds and that ideation that can happen. You know, I'm such a strong believer that we are better together. And I just love getting in a room with a team and just knowing that each person is we're all creating something new together because that combination of people is the only combination in the entire world that can be in that room at that moment trying to solve that problem. And it's only together that we can get to the solution we're going to get to. And that's really exciting to me. So I love people that enjoy that collaboration and adaptability, I think is really important because we are working in countries where it's election day. And I mean, I got really tearful as I was voting today because I just started thinking about a phone call that I got a couple years ago from Jalia. And she was like, Jessica, I just need to give you a heads up. They're about to cut off the internet. There's riots in the street. It's election day. And this is just how it goes here. So I didn't want you to be alarmed if you can't get in touch with me for a while. And here I am voting peacefully. And as much as we are in a crazy times here in America, and it's the most divisive time they say, I don't know if it's the most devices time we've ever been in because I've read a lot of books about Abraham Lincoln and <laughs> slavery and almost separating the union was that was pretty divisive. But the fact that we are still 
peacefully voting and I'm standing in line with people that are definitely not all going to vote just like me and we're going to all have differing opinions, that's really powerful for me because in a lot of the countries where we work, we'll get a call that's like, hey, your shipment was going to be out the door, but now there's a riot at the airport. So I look for people that can be adaptable and solution oriented is really important. I like people that have a bias towards action, which I think automatically comes with people who are not just going to dwell on problems, they're going to dwell on solutions. And our team here at Noonday Collection, I would say really that that's kind of what we hire to and what we fire to are those values. Yeah, our brains automatically go towards the problems. And it usually takes conscious thought and effort to train your brain not to dwell on everything that's wrong. I've noticed, too, that when I worked with larger companies, that is one of the habits that makes any environment the most toxic is when multiple people are dwelling on the negative, and especially if they're talking about it because it bubbles it back up every time. In a mastermind group, the whole premise is that two brains don't come up with double the ideas. It's exponential. It creates this extra brain. But I think the same thing happens with negativity or complaining. It just blows up, especially with women, I hate to say. I don't know why it's that gossip factor. On one hand, I think at its core, it's how some of us are just used to connecting. But there are definitely healthier ways to connect. And again, we have to train ourselves with those things. So I love that your company reframes that working relationship as a sisterhood. So what does it mean to you to create that sisterhood within your company and also in your relationships with other women? The sisterhood effect is where we choose collaboration over competition and we choose generous assumptions over judgment. And we choose to believe that we are the solution to the problems that we see. When I was in college, I remember learning in Sociology 101 something called the bystander effect. And the bystander effect is the sociological phenomenon that they've studied and researched. And what they have found is that if there is a person in crisis, the more people that are around that person during that crisis, the less likely that person is actually going to get helped because everyone assumes someone else is going to get to that person. That's someone else's job. And the sisterhood effect is all about showing up. It's about saying, tag, I'm it. There's no looking around thinking someone else could do it better. I'm not quite ready for that. I don't have the adequacy. The sisterhood effect is saying, you know what? There's a sister in need, tag, I'm it. And it's, again, having that bias towards collaboration and towards action and towards being solution-oriented. And I think to be that kind of person, we've got to know that there's power in our presence and that our presence matters. And I think that that's something that I've really had to grow and learn through the years. Like, you know what? It matters if I show up. And I think sometimes in this Evite era, we get all these digital Evites and we think, man, do they just blast this out to everyone in their database? And sometimes I like immediately, I'm like, I've got a crazy weekend and I'll immediately do no. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this person entered my name in here. Like it matters if I show up and just, I think we really need to own that, that our presence does matter. And if we could all own that, then I think our world would change, right? We'd be showing up in such amazing ways. <laughs> I actually just got a Facebook invite from someone in a women's group I'm in and she's launching something new and she's having her first event. And I went through that same thought process. I thought, well, I'm kind of busy. I'll just write congrats. But then I thought, you know, I've been working really hard on mind love this year. And when people have shown up for me or have gone out of their way to support me, it's meant so much to me because so much of my heart is in this idea. There's so much on the line. I'm putting so much effort. There were people I wasn't very close to at all. And because of just simple things, even just sharing my show, it really brought our relationship to a whole new level. So then I just think how much it would mean for this friend if I were to show up to her first event. But then it's still a balance, though, because the more driven you are and the more goals you have, the more you value your time also. 
So I'm curious with you, you have this huge company, you wrote a book, you do interviews, you have a pretty large family, you speak. So with all of that going on, how do you make sure that you show up for the people in your life? So I do enjoy showing up for others. And that's, if you were to ask what would be my favorite way to spend an evening, it would be sitting in my hot tub with a glass of wine with a bunch of girlfriends. There's nothing better for me than really great conversation. And, you know, I also know that we can't show up for everyone, right? So I think it's also understanding like, who are those friends in my life? And in what level can I show up for people? But the other night, I got invited to a friend who was in town for her book launch. She launched a book and Austin was one of her stops. I had met her in person once several years ago at a conference that we were speaking at. I mean, we're online friends at best, but not even a ton. But I saw where it was and I, it was on a Friday night. And my daughter, it was like a homecoming football game near there. And I thought, I can just stop by. I can just run by Barnes and Noble and peek in. And I did that. And I mean, her eyes got so big when she saw me walking in there and I just thought, man, this felt really good. And I didn't know anyone there. I just showed up. And I think oftentimes when we get invited to something, we're usually thinking about, oh, how are we going to feel? What's it going to feel like to walk in? You know, blah, blah, blah. I actually have something this Thursday night where I'm feeling those feelings about it. It's like a big speakers event and Reese Witherspoon and Brene Brown are some of the keynotes of this thing I'm speaking at. And it's the speaker's dinner. And I'm like, are they going to be there? And oh my God, that's crazy. I'd love to get to meet Reese. But I'm like, I don't even know any of the other speakers. It feels, am I just going to walk into this room alone? And it's all about me, right? Instead of thinking, oh my gosh, there might be a woman at that event that really needs some encouragement who might need some just presence or maybe an authentic place where she can just share the real story, what's going on in her life. I'm reframing right now my Thursday night as I'm talking to you because I've been thinking it completely through the lens of I'm going to feel so insecure. Am I going to have anyone to talk to instead of like, wait a minute, I've got something to give someone in that room. That's why I need to go Thursday. I need to go because my presence matters. And I think if we could approach that, we would really connect a lot more. And it's a lot more motivating to go to events that way, you know, when you're thinking like you're kind of on the hunt. Why am I here? Like, there's a reason. I'm going to find out why. It's so funny that you just said that because it reminds me of an email I just got from a listener. You'll probably know who you are out there when I say this, but I send out a daily inspirational email that I call the morning mind love every day. And a lot of people reply to them every day when one of them just seems to hit home. So someone just emailed me saying that when she walks into a room, instead of worrying about how she looks or what they'll think of her, she instead thinks, how may I be of service? And that simple shift always just melts her anxiety. And I loved that because like you said, we tend to make things about us, but then that's where our energy will be just circling in our own thoughts, worrying what people will think and centering everything on ourselves. So the moment we ask, how can we serve or just trust that our presence is needed we become a vehicle for something beyond ourselves. Kind of like that first time I opened up about my bulimia. I don't know why I was called to do that, but I definitely feel like it was needed. And the more I get out of my own way and allow that sort of magic to happen, the most synchronicities seem to happen. Like the universe is rewarding me or confirming that this is exactly where I'm supposed to be and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And I know you know what I'm talking about because you've shared a story about your adoption process that I feel like is such a great example of those magical moments and synchronicities. That was crazy. Yeah, that's super crazy. So when we began the adoption process, we were very open, like, are we going to do foster? Are we going to do domestic adoption, international adoption? And so we began to really pray and start researching what are the various avenues in which you can adopt. And one of those avenues, of course, is international adoption. And we begin to tell some friends, hey, this is really how we're thinking about growing our family. Well, I got 
two things happened. So one of the things is one of my friends was in Rwanda and he was actually applying for a job with an organization there that I love and support. And he somehow heard through the grapevine that we were thinking about adopting. And he emailed me from Rwanda and he said, I'm in Rwanda. Nobody knows. I'm thinking about moving here. And I just met a woman who wants to start facilitating adoptions for American families here in Rwanda. Do you want me to connect you to her? And I thought, yeah, sure. I mean, we were just kind of at that information gathering phase. So then I'm like, okay, Rwanda, hmm, I didn't even know that was really an option. And so then I started Googling Rwandan adoption blogs. And uh, the first blog that came up, I clicked on. And this woman was right in the middle of their adoption. And I reached out to her and I said, hey, can you tell me a little more? We're thinking about starting this process. I'd love to pick your brain. And she wrote back and she said, yeah, I noticed that you live in Austin. I actually live in Austin too. Would you want to meet up? So I thought, well, God, that's crazy. So then I went to her blog. I hadn't really looked at her pictures or anything. And I clicked on the photo area and it ends up, it's my roommate from college from my junior year of college. And that's when I was like, okay, Rwanda, that's where we're adopting from. Like, I love when the universe makes things crystal clear like that. And I do think though, when we're looking for that, when we're looking for possibility, it's like the confirmation bias, right? I think so many times we're trying to confirm a negative story, a negative bias, like, oh, look, we're going to feel left out again, or look, we're not going to have enough again, or We're never going to have the financial security we thought we're going to have instead of looking for the possibility. It's that quote that says, my darling, what if I fall? What if I fly? It's like if we could confirm this bias that we're made for flight, that we're made for possibility, start living a lot more in that place. But it doesn't come naturally. I mean, listen, it makes it sound like, oh, my gosh, how do you do that? My book, I mean, it says live a life of purpose by leaving comfort and going scared. I mean, fear plays a huge factor in my life. I mean, my my podcast is called Going Scared, and it's because I'm trying to teach people that we can be afraid and go anyway, which means I do have those fears. But I love that it really is a shift in mindset that can get us into that place of possibility. Yes. And for me, the more I go in scared, the easier it gets because action builds momentum. If there's something I want to do and I'm sitting at home overthinking it and worrying if I'm going to fail, then there's no evidence showing me that I'm wrong. So I'm stuck in this limbo. And as I've said before, indecision is a form of pain, which that knowledge alone changed my whole life. (laughs) But when I take action, I start to see progress. And each bit of progress is a tiny win. And I start to think, maybe I can do this. Wait, actually, I'm already doing this. I'm building what you've called that confirmation bias. And even if something goes wrong in the process, at least it's narrowing down the next action to take. What about you? Have you found that the more you go in scared, the less scary it really is? I totally do. Yes, I totally do. I think that courage is just like a muscle. I think the more we practice it, the stronger it gets. And then there's like always more ground for us to take, though. It's not scary for me at all now to go into some a woman's home and talk about Noonday Collection or ask someone to join our community as a Noonday Ambassador and start their own business with us. I do that all the time. I mean, if anything, I'm like, come on, you can do this. Join me, join me, join me. You know, whereas that used to be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm about to make an ask. And I feel like the salesperson and all of those things that is like completely gone. You know, I'm going to Harvard. That makes me feel way out of my comfort zone, way out of my league. And again, I think that when we take those steps out of our comfort zone and just step into those vulnerable places, that is where we have those choices of like, what are we going to do with that? Are we going to pretend we have it all together? Are we going to armor up? Or are we just going to show up and believe that we have something to bring? Because we all have something to bring and we've got to own it so that we can use it so that other people can be blessed. Yes. And I can totally confirm all of these things from my experience launching Mind Love this last year. So I did 
all the things. I took risks. I allowed myself to be vulnerable. And I just went in with a service mentality. I joined a bunch of groups for accountability and it all worked for me. But just recently I realized, wow, I accomplished all of my initial goals. I need to stop, replan, and make another big move. Otherwise, I'm just going to end up coasting. So how do you make sure that you don't get caught up in those feelings that you've made it and that you're continually pushing yourself and taking those big risks? Yeah. I do think we have only just begun. So we have 2,000 Noonday Collection ambassadors throughout the country. These are social entrepreneurs who have launched their own businesses, and they're the ones who are creating the marketplace for people like Dahlia and Daniel. And we want to be a well-recognized brand. We actually would love to add 3,000 ambassadors to our team next year and end the year with 5,000 women. So that's a 10x growth. So I think setting those goals that are from that realm of possibility that stretch you are going to force you into those places of discomfort. I mean, they just are. So I think it's important to kind of put yourself out there and really imagine where do I want to be from a year from now? What do I want to be feeling? What do I want to be thinking when I look around? Who are my friends? What's going on with my business? What's going on with my family? Imagine that. Really sit in that, stand in that, and then look back and go, what did it take to get me here? And guaranteed, it took some breakthrough, and it took some risk, and it took some vulnerability. When I think, what did it take for me to get here? I know that my biggest breakthroughs came from working on myself and starting within. I actually remember the first book that really shifted my mindset on realizing my own power. And it was Don Miguel Ruiz, The Mastery of Love. Well, actually, that whole trilogy, starting with the four agreements, is amazing. So I highly recommend it. What was it that kickstarted your self-growth, if it even was a thing? I think that I learned so much by doing. I'm a doer. I'm definitely a jump first, look later kind of gal. And as I started Noonday and then suddenly I'm like, yeah, sure. Open your home. I'll show up with some stuff. And I'm like, don't even know if John and Daniel are actually going to ship me items at that point. I don't even know if they're actually real people. I had never met them before. And I think that as I started going on this journey, what I encountered were really just feelings around adequacy. And as things grew, and especially when I acquired my business partner after about a year, and this is a guy who's like, I'm going to live off my life savings account to see if we can really scale this into a business. That's when my mindset became really important because I thought, gosh, it was one thing when it was just me, myself and I, and I pawned some gold jewelry and I'm going into friends' homes. But it's another thing when someone is literally believes in your vision so much that he's willing to bet everything on it. and. That's when I had to become clear of what is this feeling inside of me that's holding me back? What is that mindset? And for me, I'm super thankful that was right in the year 2010 when Brene Brown's TED Talk went viral about vulnerability. So Brene's work definitely influenced me and she went on to endorse my book and kind of in each other's a little bit circles. And so I would say that her work in general has really, really influenced me and especially around understanding perfectionism because I, I never identified as a perfectionist. But then what I realized is perfectionism is just believing that there's this idealized person of yourself that if you could somehow eventually reach that idealized version, you could escape all feelings of pain blame and judgment. And I definitely had that mindset of like, gosh, if I could just lose 20 pounds and my life would be pain-free. Gosh, if I could just could make this happen, then life would be glorious. And it's such a false way of living. And then again, we're just living, hustling for our worth instead of receiving it, receiving that we already are worthy. And I think she really helped me to kind of see that and then come out of that journey. And especially as a mom running a startup, there's a lot of shame around what does it mean to be a good mom? And can I be a good mom and a good CEO? And I think I used to see those as mutually exclusive. And now I see them as actually me being a good mom and a good CEO are not mutually exclusive. And 
my business is for the flourishing of my family just as much as it's for the flourishing of the world as well. But that was a messy, messy internal journey that I went through. Again, I was going through this internal journey as the external one was happening. So I think sometimes we think, and I did think, I thought, what if Nina is going to be wildly successful? I thought that within the first few months, because I did have this sense there was something special here. There was, I had found this hole in the marketplace and women were really responding. And I thought, oh my God, what if it becomes successful and I become full of pride and I just leave my people and what if I become someone different that I'm not? And I almost, I thought I'm not ready. Like somehow I needed to go through some sort of self-actualization before I could be ready to go do the thing. And I think that's where it's just a bunch of BS. I think you got to just start walking those steps and learn as you go and fall and get back up. And that's the only way this journey really goes down. That makes sense. I was almost the opposite in the beginning. First, I read all of these self-development books. And then when it came to goals... For a long time, I was the lurker. I was the person I warn about taking too many courses, trying to get every detail perfect before I launched anything, and that led to no action taken. Then something just kind of snapped in me, and I thought, okay, I'm going in, scared and imperfect, and we'll see how this goes. But now I have done both methods, and I can honestly say that Just getting started is so much better. I actually get stuff done now, but also like we talked about earlier, seeing my own progress is so rewarding and it builds momentum. Mm. I do have to ask, I've heard you mention Abraham Lincoln quite a bit, (laughs) not just today, but in other interviews you've done. What is it about Abraham Lincoln that just gets you? You know, I read his book. Well, it wasn't his book. It was by this historian and she compiled thousands and thousands of letters between Abraham Lincoln and his wife and his children and his cabinet. And I think what fascinates me about him is that he built a cabinet of rivals. So all the people that sat on his cabinet were either opposing him in the race, so they had formerly run against him, or they were on the other side of the aisle from him. He really learned how to create a space of dialogue, a safe space of dialogue, and wasn't afraid to have people challenge him that believed really differently than from him. And eventually, I just, I love the way that he led. He just was a really strong leader. In the book, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill talks about having an invisible council, and it's almost like an imaginary mastermind. Napoleon Hill believed that when two or more people met together and blended the energies of their minds, a sort of third brain was formed, a mastermind that the whole group had access to. I kind of touched on this earlier in the episode. The third brain allowed each member of the group to tap into this sixth sense, He described it in the book as that portion of the subconscious mind which has been referred to as the creative imagination. It's also been referred to as the receiving set through which ideas, plans, and thoughts flash into the mind. These flashes are sometimes called hunches or inspiration. This is where the idea of a mastermind comes from. It's not just double the brain power, it adds another dimension. So Napoleon thought that people should form their own mastermind groups where they meet in person in order to recharge their brains, refine their ideas, and receive inspiration. But he also believed that a person could form his own cabinet of invisible counselors, just like he had done. This is actually a cool concept that my husband and I talk about a lot. Have you ever noticed that sometimes you know someone so well, you almost hear their voice in your head? My mom is kind of OCD about cleanliness. I love you, mom. But sometimes when I'm doing something, I can almost hear her telling me to wring out the sponge or, miss, are you using this anymore? Can you put it away? (laughs) Well, now imagine doing this with your goals. You take, say, five people that inspire you in different ways. You don't even need to know them personally, but you do need to know a lot about them, enough to kind of figure out how their brain works. You learn enough that you start to get an idea of how they think. Then, whether it's during meditation or quiet time to yourself, you focus on each of your invisible counselors and think, what would they do in this situation? 
Some of my people are Elon Musk, because come on, who thinks like him? Steve Jobs, because think different, and he created things with his own flair. Marianne Williamson, because not many spiritual leaders make an effort to stay so relevant in current events and kind of provide that guidance. Jen Sincero, because of her relatable badass approach to spirituality, and the last one tends to cycle through depending on what I'm currently working on. You might have been able to tell that my Invisible Council combines entrepreneurship, innovation and creativity, and spirituality. All of these things are also in line with my core values that we talked about last week in episode 51. So when I'm making a big decision, if I go through and think about what each of these people would do, it forces me to think from someone else's brain. And that gives me a pretty well-rounded approach, all without leaving my living room. And yours might be totally different from mine. It could be your mom because she was an amazing parent or a friend who's a great listener. But whoever you choose, this technique is powerful. So I challenge you to think, who would you put in your invisible council? So with everything you've learned about Abraham Lincoln, how has that affected the way you lead? Yeah, I think that dialogue is really important. And I mean, at the very beginning of the listening curve, the learning curve around listening, I actually, I just posted this on Instagram, but I on Friday had a couple different lunches with entrepreneurial friends and we just started like our brain juices started flowing. So I got out my voice memo on my phone to record our conversation. Cause I was like, Oh my God, this is good. I don't want to miss out. And then over the weekend, I pressed record to take more formal notes on our conversation, and I was so embarrassed. I interrupted so many times. I didn't often wait for them to like finish their thought. I mean, I just thought, oh my gosh, is this the kind of listener I am? And I mean, granted, we were in these very like enthusiastic ideation conversations where you kind of end up talking over one another, but I'm like, maybe there's another way. Like maybe the ideas would have been so much better if I could have just started taking a note on my thought instead of just saying out loud and like bulldozing the other person. So I think for me, being a listener is something I really value. It's just something requires a lot of effort for me. And I want to be a listener and I want to create environment at our office for listening because that is where I think innovation and creativity takes place when people feel safe just to like live in that realm of possibility. And that's really exciting for me, those kind of conversations. So I want to be sure to create a space where people can have them. I feel like most of us assume we're good listeners, and then we bring awareness to it and realize we kind of suck. But it's such a good lesson, especially with our political climate right now. We're all just so divided, and no one's listening to each other. I know this isn't a political show, but it is a show about awareness and intention, and obviously the way we're communicating and showing up for our country just isn't working. So as a female leader who does a lot of international business, I'm curious about your perspective. How can we best show up and do our parts and still stand for what we believe in without adding to the divide? I think that we need to be intentional about building relationships with people that don't vote like us and don't look like us and didn't grow up like us. And I think that is why Abraham Lincoln really inspired me because he was very intentional about doing that with the people closest to him. And I think that so much can happen when we really are learners and we become learners and we approach life through a lens of learning and realizing, gosh, I might have really thought this was where I stood, but. I mean, I'd love to really learn more and be flexible and like maybe that we might land in a different place due to a conversation or due to being influenced by someone who might come from a very different point of view than us. And I think that we're in echo chambers right now. And I try to build a community that isn't just one great big echo chamber. I want people that have voted on different side of the aisles. I want people that look differently than me, that grow up differently than me. And that's something that's really important to me. I think that's really challenging to build, but it's something that I really want to do. Well, thank you so much for all the wisdom you've shared today. And honestly, the impact you're making in this world. It's just so inspiring. So for listeners who resonate with your story, where can we find your book and where's the best place to connect online? 
Absolutely. My book is called Imperfect Courage and it is available where all books are sold. It's on Amazon Prime right now as well. And you can follow me on Instagram, Jessica Honiger. It's two G's and one in. And also you can go visit my website. I have a courage quiz on there. If you're curious about what your courage meter is, you can go head on over to jessicahoniker.com to take that courage quiz. Have you ever noticed that sometimes it takes something testing our strength for us to really understand how much strength we actually have? Whether it's a woman determined to adopt or a mom lifting a car off a child, yes, that's really happened and it is not just folklore, or a young kid fighting off an intruder, or even Leanna Strelkoff in episode 20 building her dream life only after being paralyzed from the waist down. Sometimes the universe pushes us harder and harder until we finally stand up and start pushing back. I know I had to reach my rock bottom, a few of them actually, before I started living my life in creation mode instead of reaction mode. So does that mean that we didn't have that strength before those things happened? No. Then why do we let it get to a place of such extreme before we start living our best lives? So this week I have a challenge for you guys. Start thinking like the person whose life you want to create. Envision your future ideal self. Write down all of her or his characteristics. Give her a name. Beyonce even does this. Hers is Sasha Fierce. Put that person on your invisible council. And the next time you're faced with a decision, don't forget to ask what she would do. All the links in this episode are at mindlove.com slash 052. You can support this show by supporting our sponsors. I only partner with brands I really do love and fully believe in. If you're enjoying Mind Love, tell a friend, family member, or coworker about it. And don't forget to subscribe on CastBox or Apple Podcasts and rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, for some extra inspiration between episodes, don't forget to sign up for the Morning Mind Love at mindlove.com or text MORNING to 444-999. And you can visit me on social media at Mind Love Podcast. Thanks for giving your mind a little love today, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for tuning into your higher frequency with Mind Love. Head to mindlove.com for a free gift to keep your vibes up until next week.